0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics touring the disaster zone. The damage is worse than any pictures uh, could do credit to. The Prime Minister went to au Basque, Newfoundland today speaking to area residents about the trauma and the loss in the wake of Fiona. Coming up, we'll be joined by the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury. also. We'll go to Cape Breton, another maritime community still cleaning up and coming to terms with the damage. We'll speak with the regional mayor, Amanda McDougall. And, approaching a day of truth and reconciliation, we will speak to Senator Michelle Odette as Canada prepares to mark the day for a second time in our country's history. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Prime Minister continued his tour in Atlantic Canada today, spending this Wednesday in Port-au-Basque, Newfoundland, where he saw the devastation with his own eyes and heard the stories of trauma and loss from area residents. Here now is more from the Prime Minister. Obviously uh, it was really important for me to come uh, here to Newfoundland to see uh, the level of devastation but also to be reminded of uh, the strength of Newfoundlanders. What we're seeing even as uh, people have lost so much as the, as the damage is worse than any pictures uh, could do credit to. Among the many people who accompanied the Prime Minister today was Andrew Fury, the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who today also unveiled a provincial package for people affected by the storm. And we are very happy to have on the program today the Premier, Andrew Fury. Premier, thank you for joining us. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Listen, I'm wondering uh, how you are right now, where you are around port basque Here we are, days after Fiona hit. What do you see around you? What's your reaction to what you're seeing?
1: Uh, The reaction is uh, very emotional. Um, You know, it's one thing uh, to see a a picture of a floating rooftop. It's it's another thing to talk to the person who owned it, realize that that doesn't represent a house. It represents a home, someone's someone's home. You know, uh, I talked to a lady today who lost her home. She's in her 80s, 55 years she spent in that house. Um, you know, and if you in Puerto Basque, here, you're walking around some of the rubble, and you're seeing personal items, bed sheets, socks, shoes, uh, photo albums. Um, you know, it makes you realize that uh, it's more than just infrastructure devastation. It's more than loss of buildings. It's it's a loss of people's homes, and that's quite personal.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, we hear it often when referring to the American president that there are times in his job, in his career, that he's called upon to be the Consoler-in-Chief. And here you are right now, being a Consoler to the people of Porto Basque and the surrounding region. How difficult is that to try to keep your own strength as you listen to these stories?
1: Yeah, it's it's tough. There's no question about it. Um, But we need to be there for them. We need to be that shoulder, figuratively and literally, uh, for them to... uh, to cry on, uh, to lean on, um, as we uh, find the collective community strength that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are known for around the world uh, to rebuild. Uh, so, you know, the focus is, of course, on the immediate uh, comfort and, and, and consoling of, of the people and, and helping them work through the trauma. Uh, but we're also focused on how to, how to help them, how to help them get through uh, to focus on uh, the rebuild that's ahead of us. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to lie; it's it's not always easy, uh, but um, it comes with the job, and um, and uh, you rally with each other. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are known for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the trauma aside, I'm wondering what are you identifying right now as Premier of the province? What are you identifying as the immediate challenge <laughs> uh, on the ground around Port Basque and the surrounding region?
1: Yeah, so sure, in in any natural disaster, Michael, the, you know, the immediate challenge is shelter clothing, food, and uh, making sure people have somewhere to lay their head at night. And, uh, and that's been accomplished thanks to uh, governments, thanks to uh, stakeholders and organizations, non-governmental, have really pulled together to ensure that that's happened. And then, you know, we move still in the response phase of trying to inventory the exact damage mm-hmm. and the exact loss so that we can plan for the next stage, which is the recovery.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, to both of those, I guess, your government did announce today that aid will be coming to affected residents. Can you tell us about what Newfoundland and Labrador will be doing?
1: Yeah, sure. So we recognize that there's an immediate need uh, and we want to make sure that we're help doing our part to to help alleviate the financial stress. You can imagine the trauma of of losing your home uh, and trying to fill out. I mean, we've all filled out insurance forms, Michael, in the past, fender benders and their complicated and stressful. Imagine losing your entire home and then trying to inventory that and and even find the files attached to it because presumably they're gone as well, computers, file folders. So we want to make sure that people know that we're there for them in the short term with a financial package, um, which will hopefully be available to them by Monday so that they can secure uh, things like uh, food, clothing, Things that aren't available through volunteer organizations, and and but then we want to take the stress and train off them uh, about the longer term in terms of rebuilding, and we will be there to support them financially for that as well, because a lot of these properties that were lost uh, were were either uninsurable or they the insurance didn't cover an extreme event like this, and um, you can imagine the stress that that would cause in someone's life. Uh, that their their whole life savings has gone, invested in this house uh, and home and uh, and no insurance is going to cover what well, we want to be that comfort for those people. And I can tell you, I've talked to somebody yesterday in the community who <clears throat> you could see the stress and strain in their body language. And when we you know, told them that we would be there for them to replace their home, uh, regardless of if their insurance company was present or not, you could just see the relief come in their in their eyes and their body language and their shoulders and and that's the kind of real and symbolic relief that we want to provide for people today mm-hmm. uh, of course the
0: Prime Minister is in Port au Basque today uh, what does it mean to have the Prime Minister in Newfoundland Labrador in the community so hard hit by Fiona
1: well I think it's important for the Prime Minister to be here to understand the uh, exact impact that it's had Again, it's one thing to see the images. Uh, It's another thing to actually hear the stories and talk to the people and experience it firsthand. Uh, But I'm confident that that the prime minister has a full grasp and will have a better grasp. And then that will help formulate for him how the federal government can be involved in the relief effort. And I think once you see it, you understand that this isn't a a week's cleanup. It's not a month's cleanup. It's a several-year rebuild, and we need to make sure that the federal government understands that. And I'm confident they do. I know that the Prime Minister has an affinity for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and I'm sure that this will come shining through today. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the federal government has already, as you know, uh, very well deployed Canadian forces. They have already committed some funds. They say that they will be responsive. Do you have any specific ask of the Prime Minister at this point?
1: Yeah, we, we're going to talk to him about how and uh, talk to Minister Anon about how Uh, the military are deployed and how they can be uh, used Uh, and that's part of this crucial few days you know you do a needs assessment figure out what's needed and then try to match the skills with what's required for the communities so I think those conversations can be had now that we have a better understanding of what's of what's required and again I'm confident that the prime minister and the ministers will understand that and will deliver.
0: Premier I know it's been a very busy few days for you really appreciate the time today thank you.
1: Thank you Michael and thanks to all the volunteers who have helped I mean I spent an evening or uh, you know with volunteer firefighters who've been on the on the scene for 48 72 hours it's a it's a real sense of community and volunteerism in, in some of these small and remote communities and they're really caring and, and shouldering the load and we all owe them a debt of gratitude
0: absolutely uh, premier thank you again take care thank you Meanwhile, in Nova Scotia, tens of thousands of people are still without electricity. And Nova Scotia Power says its workers still have not had a chance to survey all affected area. Now that's because downed trees, power lines and debris tossed around by the storm is making it very difficult to get in and actually do a physical assessment. And that is a reality people in Cape Breton know all too well. Amanda McDougall is the mayor for the regional municipality. She joins us right now. Mayor McDougall, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, a few days ago, uh, you and the municipality declared a state of emergency. I'm wondering where things stand right now.
2: Sure. So on Sunday morning, I do believe it was, um, we gathered virtually as a council to say, hey, you know, usually when we have storms, what we see is, pockets of our community impacted by weather events, but this was completely widespread across the municipality. Um, The damage so intense and massive that we needed to implement the tools associated with a state of local emergency um, and had those papers signed off on immediately. Right now, that state of local emergency stands until Saturday, um, which at that time we'll be reconvening to discuss whether or not we extend it or not.
0: Now you say that the the damage was widespread throughout the municipality. Can you describe for us what you have seen, what you've been told about? Certainly we've seen the pictures, but it never really does uh, substitute what people are seeing on the ground firsthand. So would you mind sharing with us what you have seen uh, throughout the region?
2: Sure. So in any community right now in CBRM, um, you're seeing a lot of trees giant trees these aren't just uh someone had asked me oh a lot of like christmas trees no these are gigantic humongous 100 year old trees that have fallen so they're they're massive a lot of trees that were impeding roadways have now been cleared or at least there's one lane passable. but the problem is um when you do cut down parts of those trees the remnants of that tree is intertwined with many 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 uh wires their electricity wires, their telecommunications wires, uh, you name it, and it is it is just catastrophic. Um, you're also seeing road closures, you're seeing houses without roofs, with windows that are boarded up because they blew in. Uh, you're seeing damage to businesses. For example, here in my hometown in Glace Bay, a six-bay car wash <sighs> You know brick building was completely demolished it's rubble on the ground right now that's how intense these winds were and uh yeah there's no there's no end to the to the de- destruction in the image right now
0: so you paint a picture as you say of these century-old trees bringing down power lines of debris in the way of vehicles so what is your ask now of mm-hmm. local residents because it does not sound safe at all to be wandering around the streets of the municipality
2: yeah. So unfortunately, residents are are depending still to this day on generators. Uh, power outages continue. Um, we're seeing restoration dates not until next week, which is really problematic because residents now need to get out. They need to replenish um, their food stock. They need to get gas for generators, gas for their vehicles, and. Um, It's a bit chaotic, I'm not going to lie, because there are so few stations that are open because of the power outages, but you see long, long lineups wherever you go um, to access these types of resources. So what we're asking residents to do is, if you do not need to be outside to replenish your, your food and your gasoline, stay home. It is not the time to be driving around and looking at the damage. I know we want to see, I know we want to understand the depth of this storm and the impacts of it, But it is incredibly dangerous and it's also hindering the ability for crews on the road to access the sites that they need to to bring our power back and do that restoration work.
0: Now, I realize that in moments of crisis like this, uh, leaders like yourself get very busy, head down, doing the work that needs to be done to, to meet the challenge that's in front of you. But I am wondering, how you're doing right now, you know, in the midst of taking care of other people, what goes through your mind, your heart, really to see the aftermath of the storm?
2: Um, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about that, because when I do, I get upset. And even I don't know if you can hear it, it's, it's hard. Um, You want to be able to help everybody and do everything. Um, I understand the frustration. I understand how angry people are that we don't have power everywhere yet i understand how frustrating it is and maddening it is that you you might not have the gasoline resources that you need right now and we are working exceptionally hard around the clock um advocating to our provincial to our federal to the private entities across um the nation to help us Um, that's what we can do right now We're, we're using our voices as strongly as possible and i know being municipal elected officials we are as they say um you know that level of government that's closest to the ground so you know, it's really hard when um, when you're working and trying to figure out solutions and you're kind of that punching bag a bit sometimes. And I get it, and I want to be there to take on everybody's frustrations. Um, but you know what, at the end of the day, I see it in my colleagues too. Um, their hearts are heavy. They're dealing with a lot of personal loss themselves, be that um, their, their own properties or businesses. Um, but we really we really have to support one another. It is incredibly important. It is incredibly important that we support one another right now uh, and show our best instead of our worst. Mm-hmm.
0: You talk about asking for help uh, from provincial, federal officials. Is that coming quickly enough for you, do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I have to hand it to Premier Tim Houston. He was here one day, the next day, uh, announced the Disaster Financial Assistance Program that's going to immediately um, help folks. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was here yesterday. I know that there's going to be a federal uh, announcement soon about uh, the support that they are going to be providing. We have the army on the ground here now. Um, It is, it's happening and we need it to continue. And that's where we, that's where our work is right now in that advocacy piece, making sure that all levels of government and like I said, private entities as well, know how much help we need um, and know how long we're going to need their help for. This is... This is, this is a long journey for us um, to start rebuilding and bringing back some sort of normalcy to residents. And uh, we cannot do it alone. We simply cannot. We don't have the resources.
0: Well, Mayor, uh, certainly we are watching from the nation's capital and really sending you our best in this moment. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Best of luck with everything.
2: Really, really grateful for that. And I, I just want to say to everybody, your thoughts and your kindness is being felt. All day, every day, and please, 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 just keep a keep a little prayer to whomever you worship to uh, send some luck our way.
0: Our best mayor. We'll speak again. Thank you. Well, Friday will mark the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a day to honour the children, now adults, who were forced to attend residential schools and survived, and also to honour the children whose lives were destroyed and lost in these institutions. Senator Michelle Odette is the past president of the Native Women's Association of Canada. She also served as a commissioner for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The senator joins us right now. Senator, thank you for being here.
3: Yes, thank you.
0: Now, as we mark this second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, I'm wondering about what you are thinking of. Is it the survivors, the children who never came home? What, or perhaps more accurately, who are you holding in your heart right now?
3: I'm holding my mom, even though she's away from where I am today. Uh, she's in our community. I'm holding my aunties, my cousin, many people that I've met over the years that had too many stories about what happened to them in residential schools or also day school. Mm-hmm. I also carry in my heart very, in, in. I guess it's natural, being a mom and a, a cuckoo, I carry the people of the second and third generation that walk beside the family who were affected and still, and this generation also trying to understand and reconnect with the mm-hmm. past, but to have a place also that we can say, we're not survivors, but we want to live and we have the right to live. So I have one or thousands of people in my heart. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I am.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you have met so many uh, people who have walked the path. And, and that does make me wonder because you have served as we said as a commissioner for the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and i'm wondering whether or not that experience changes the way you think of this national holiday
3: it did it did and it's something that uh, i think we were we were blessed and still today but to be honest uh This journey for me, it was a moment that I realized that our stories, the voices that we heard across Canada, some of them or many of them had trust in us to make sure that their voice resonates to the federal government and each government across Canada. But in my heart also was that for three years, I was not in a depression, but I was very low with the energy because it was either a story of somebody close to me it was one of our story my girl, my my kids or me so we it was it was it was hard to just dis- detach myself and my spirit
4: mm-hmm.
3: but at the same time what kept me going it's that now that I know I cannot pretend that it was isolated or it's a few stories I have a responsibility mm-hmm. so I have to honor that every day in many ways, so that's how I feel.
0: Well, it it does lead me to wonder, because I I called it a national holiday or a holiday, but as you know, it remains in large part a day that is really only observed by federally regulated industries. Not every province has adopted this day that's meant for reflection and remembrance. What does that say about where we are as a country and on the path to reconciliation?
3: It might be, uh, an example that it's nothing for some of us. I was with my uh, teenagers at the IG, you know, a food store, and this Quebecois person was so proud to say that he owns three uh, food, food market or a store. And for the first time, all the staff will wear the orange shirt and he wanted to do in a good way. And it's all Quebecois people or the majority. I don't think there's, many Indigenous people working there, and they wanted to do good. So for me, it tells me that there's more allies that we can think that are outside of the government places, you know, the, the, the elected people where we challenge or we are challenged. And it was telling me that we need to continue to educate, even though it's we're exhausted or it's demanding a lot, now it's them that they might become the people explaining why they wear the rape orange uh, shirt that they at that store or at that place. Mm-hmm. And then I realized across Canada that many Canadian students from, you know, very young age or university level that they will stand with us and beside us. And that's for me very powerful and important.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet you and I are are speaking on a day that also marks the second anniversary of Joyce Echaquan's death in Quebec. A coroner's report released last year really identifying both racism and prejudice as contributing factors to her death. But in the midst of a Quebec election, Indigenous issues have not figured very largely. What's your reaction to that?
3: I was away for a month up north, like every year. And when I came back, I was following the second or the third debate nothing uh, about Indigenous uh, good or, you know, initiative or issue or things that it's affecting us. Then I said to myself, it's, it's, again, our responsibility as people as, you know, Indigenous people or allies to remind the Quebec election, the people that are involved in that election that you don't need the journalist to ask you the question. If you truly believe that we have to rebuild the relationship that is broken or in the process of uh, nation to nation, like some of them will say, then just add us in your answer, but they didn't. So we'll make sure that the next government who will be chosen by the people who vote will not stop ourselves to educate and remind them that we were there, we're still there and we're not giving up.
0: Senator Michelle Odette, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. We know discussions like these can be triggering for some of our viewers, so there is help out there for those who need it. Among the organizations you can call are the National Residential School Crisis Line, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Crisis Line, and the Hope for Wellness Line. All the numbers are on your screen right now.
4: At one time, only uh, land-owning male British subjects could vote in our elections. And of course, over time, Canada uh, broadened the tent to include so many other voices. Uh, So right now, 16- and 17-year-olds are a group that, uh, if they were brought into our electoral process, I think would make uh, Canada a stronger democracy. And that's why I brought forward this bill.
0: And that was NDP MP Taylor Backrack from earlier today as his private member's bill to lower the legal voting age to 16 received its second reading in the House. Now, this is not the first time a private member's bill has attempted to expand the franchise to younger voters, but it does follow a court challenge in Ontario to do just that. So, for more, we have invited BC MP Taylor Backrack to join us once again today. Hello to you, Mr. Backrack. Good afternoon, Michael. So uh, not to be a spoiler here, but your bill did not succeed. It did not pass second reading. How are you feeling right now?
4: Well, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a bit disappointed. Um, you know, We've put a lot of work into this. And I, I, I think this is an idea that would really make our country stronger. Uh, That said, I'm I'm proud of the work that we've done over the past number of months working alongside Children First Canada and Vote 16 Canada to raise awareness of the benefits of allowing 16 and 17 year olds to vote in our elections. There are a lot of countries around the world that have made this change and they've seen those benefits in terms of youth engagement, in terms of voter turnout, and really the, the issues that we're talking about in this room right behind me Issues like climate change and housing affordability and others, these are issues that have a huge bearing on the lives of young people. So I have no doubt that this is a change that eventually will come to pass in our country and it feels good to be on the right side of history.
0: Okay, Uh, let's pick up on a few points there though, because I think it's fair to say that when one thinks of a 16 year old, uh, different images come to mind. One is arguably uh, the responsible and the engaged young person. The other is a teenager more engaged in video games or super sweet 16. So is there not a potential uh, risk in giving a person the right to vote at such an age?
4: Like I said, there are countries around the world, like Austria and Scotland and Wales, that have lowered their voting age. And what they saw is that 16- and 17-year-olds are actually more engaged and more informed than 18-, 19-, and 20-year-olds. So, you know, a lot of the pushback that we've seen around this idea is really based on on prejudicial stereotypes of young people that don't necessarily bear out in reality. The reality is that young people, 16- and 17-year-olds, haven't been asked to pay attention to politics or to elections. And if they're given that agency, if they're given that opportunity, um, they're going to tune in. They're going to, to look at the issues. But more importantly, political parties are going to talk about the issues that matter to them. Uh, political parties are, are focused on the issues of voters, obviously, and non-voters, currently which include 16- and 17-year-olds, don't make it on their radar. So this is, this is an important change for a whole host of different reasons, uh, but most of all because it makes our, our, uh, our democracy stronger. Uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says every Canadian citizen shall have the right to vote. And I think that the arguments against allowing 16 and 17 year olds into the franchise are particularly weak. I, I think it's time for this change.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, this is not the first attempt. And quickly running out of time, but I do want to ask you this is not the first attempt. This did not succeed past second reading. Do you think this uh, issue will be revived again in future?
4: Oh, absolutely. And there's a bill in the Senate right now that hopefully will make it to the House. You mentioned it has come to the House before. In 2005, the current government House leader, Mark Holland, brought it as a private member's bill. And just a few moments ago, we saw him rise and vote against this idea of allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to vote. Um, the Liberal government last year consulted youth across Canada, and one of their recommendations to the government was to urgently lower the voting age. And today we saw the Liberal government w- wasn't even willing to vote to send this bill to committee. So I think they have some explaining to do to all the young people out there.
0: Well, we continue to watch the issue. Taylor Backrack. thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for your time.
0: And that is it for Primetime Politics on this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow.